Hello, and welcome to the Learn, Lead, and Thrive podcast, part of the 2017 National Association of Chronic Disease Directors President's Challenge. I'm your host, Dr. Mayhul Dawal, and today we're going to be talking about administrative evidence-based practices with our guest expert, Dr. Ross Brownson. Ross and his team have conducted a systematic review of the literature to identify what practices make health departments effective. Of course, we're all interested in that. So this conversation promises to hit the sweet spot in terms of research and application. So if you're interested in evidence-based as well as specific practices and practical tips on how to get started implementing these research-based practices, stay tuned. Ross is a former chronic disease director and is currently a professor at Washington University in St. Louis and the co-director of the Prevention Research Center. He has done some foundational research and is a key figure in developing the intellectual scaffolding in our field. What I really appreciate about Ross's work is he does not let his work sit in journals. At least from my perspective, he spent what seems to be at least an equal measure of effort in knowledge transfer and dissemination. I think some initiatives such as the evidence-based public health course, which many of our listeners will be familiar with, and these initiatives have had direct benefits in our profession. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation. So Ross, thank you for being in our show, and is there anything you want to add to that introduction? No, Maho, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for asking me to do this. Great. So let's just start right off and with a high-level overview of administrative evidence-based practices, or AEBPs. What are they, and why are they important? Yeah, good question. I guess, first of all, kind of speaking to the concept of knowledge translation, you mentioned that we've learned on, on sort of the connection of research to practice a few key lessons that an evidence-based practice doesn't just spontaneously happen. You have to take systematic steps that when you take passive steps, just sort of publish something and put it out there, it has a very low uptake. And then this is kind of the ecologic idea that single source prevention messages are less effective than more comprehensive approaches when you do many things at once. So that led us to the idea that we should study performance, basically. And so using a part of a project that we did with Robert Wood Johnson Foundation under the broad heading of PHSSR, Public Health Services and Systems Research, back in 2012, about five years ago now, we published a review of reviews. And, and what that review of reviews does, it looks at the high-level sort of agency-level structures and activities that are positively associated with performance. And performance could be quality, the rating of a service delivered, it could be a health outcome, or it could be implementation of evidence-based interventions. And so from, and those are our AEBPs that we call them, our administrative evidence-based practices. And they just came from looking at about 20 different reviews that allowed us to sort through and identify, basically, if you think about what would make an evidence-based health department, what do I need to do in a health department to be evidence-based, that's what AABPs are, the way we conceptualize them. Yeah, and I think that point is really worth sticking with. It's, it's really the practices that are associated or linked with actual outcomes. I know that we can, in terms of the administrative practices that we can look at, there's a whole literature on administrative best practices, but I think what your work has really helped us point to is what are the specific practices that are that have been linked in some way to outcomes, which as outcomes-based profession, or at least a, a profession that aspires to be outcomes-based, I think that piece is really important. I know you've also done a lot of work on, on evidence-based decision-making and evidence-based public health. What is, what is the relationship between these AEBPs or administrative evidence-based practices and evidence-based decision-making? That's a great question. So if you think of evidence-based public health as the overarching principle of sort of 
how we should perform public health at a macro level when we're using the latest, not only scientific evidence, but other kinds of evidence as well. And, you know, when we talk about evidence, we need to think of evidence broadly because in some fields, evidence may still be developing. So if you're working in, let's say, biosecurity or performance around natural disasters or even some infectious diseases, you know, SARS or Ebola, the practice is still developing, so we don't have this long list of interventions. So evidence-based public health is sort of performance broadly of the profession, and then we have the idea of using evidence-based interventions, and then this idea of the ABPs or sort of the, I would think of it as the process of, of evidence-based public health. So what do I do in an agency? And, and mostly thinking about governmental agencies, but it applies equally, I think, to non-governmental organizations if someone works in the, the Lung Association or the American Cancer Society. And so that's what we focus on a lot because oftentimes people think of an evidence-based approach as just using the latest evidence-based interventions from, say, the Community Guide or the Cochrane Reviews, and that's part of the picture. But there's a lot of other things, as, as you all know on this podcast, that go on in an agency regardless of whether your particular intervention area is in the community guide or not. Yeah, I can certainly relate to that. I think and there are some practices that actually might frustrate our attempts to, to implement what's in the, in the community guide or, or Cochrane reviews or, or, or things like that. So I think what I think our conversation will get into is some of the reasons or perhaps some of the practices that we can implement to actually enhance our ability to implement these evidence-based interventions, which I think is going to be really important to talk about and reflect on. Now, in your paper, we'll provide links to, to the extent possible, um, on our President's Challenge webpage. So um, don't feel you have to delve into the, all the details of the paper. I think our listeners will be able to, to find it and look it up based on the links we provide. But you make a helpful distinction between macro and micro level administrative evidence-based practices. Now, how do you distinguish them, and can you walk us through a couple examples of those? Sure. Be glad to do that. So macro are the things, just like it would sound, sort of at the big picture level. So it could be the jurisdiction size, whether it's a state health department or a local health department. This probably applies a little more, more for local health departments, but the governance structure, is a local agency more autonomous or is it somewhat connected to the state government or is it part of the state public health system? There can be financial practices, things like how much we're spending per capita on public health, how those monies are being raised. I think especially important in chronic disease, what's the differentiation between state funding and federal funding or maybe non-governmental funding. And then it could be characteristics of the staff and the works, the workforce itself, you know, number of chronic disease, FTEs per capita, for example. Mm-hmm. All those things are macro level, and those could be important, but I think at a big picture and also not too modifiable. You know, if you say, well, my agency will be more effective if we're strongly connected with state government if I work in a local agency. Well, it's hard to just go and change that and make it magically happen. So that's yeah. kind of the macro level. Yeah. Yeah, and I can think of another example there, at least from, again, from the state level. If you're looking at, you know, in terms of talent acquisition, you can't really do much in the immediate around the general 
goofy employment knowledge and skill sets, and I think something you point, you point out in the paper, and that, that's going to require some bigger changes at a, at a systems level, and the systems themselves are not under the control of the agency. So it's helpful to make that distinction because we can sit and think about, oh, all the things that need to be different, but the, a lot of things that we, we really can't change in the immediate term, and it's helpful to be pointed in, in things that we can change in the immediate term. So you know, something the agency might have control over, sort of an internal human resource policy or something like that. Is that Would that be a, one way to look at it? It would, yeah. That definitely yeah. would apply to these macro-level ABPs. Yeah. So I think you make a further distinction, which I think this is a really critical distinction, even within the micro-level AEBPs. Now we're looking at, I guess, generally practices of, of which the agency will have control over. So there are high-priority AEBPs and then there are moderate-priority AEBPs. Can you describe that distinction and why that matters? Sure, yeah, I'd be glad to. So, again, the micro-AEBPs are things that happen within an agency that are somewhat modifiable. And I think the differences between high-priority and moderate-priority was the high-priority are things, and we identified 11 of these, and I'll I'll give some examples, I think, later about a few of these. But these are things within a few years that just about any state or local public health agency could take on and would be modifiable. And so that, just as one example, could be providing training in a workforce setting. So that would be sort of something at the, at the micro level that's a little bit more modifiable. And then the moderate priorities, we had 10 of these, um, the other part of the, the macro was that they were identified in a literature review. So they were part of a, a synthesis of multiple articles, not just based on one article. Mm-hmm. The moderate priorities, there's 10 of those, and they were based on usually only one or maybe two articles. So original research, they take longer, and they're maybe a little less actionable because of that. Science isn't quite as strong, and they might take longer. Now, just like, Nicole, you were talking about how some things might differ in your agency than others, for some, the moderate priorities, you may say, well, we could do this. This is really important for us, and so it might raise it. So these distinctions are somewhat arbitrary, but it was helpful for us to try to think this through uh, when we put together this review. Yeah, I found that distinction very helpful. You know, the high priorities are locally modifiable. It almost makes me think of a clinical analogy to modifiable risk factors in the sort of the immediate term. So if you have hypertension, you can take a medication, and that should result in reduction of the, the blood pressure within a very, very relatively short time frame. So that analogy is helpful, and that kind of framing has been helpful in terms of thinking about these, again, because it could get overwhelming if you look at the whole slew of them that are possible. And it really gives practitioners some real guideposts towards implementing something that's both actionable and evidence-based. But I do want to take us, you know, take some time to look at these high-priority modifiable uh, practices, and they fall into five major categories, at least at how your research group has organized them. Which again, I think is helpful to think about it this way. What I'd like to do is just kind of have you offer a quick example of each of these categories, and, and again, if folks want to take a deeper dive and look at this further. We'll provide links to the paper. So I'm going to read out one by one, and maybe you can offer a quick uh, explanation or an example in each one to give folks a flavor. So the first category you mentioned is workforce development. Yeah, so workforce development, and we, we ended up with a couple of specific items within that domain. And this is also interesting that it's connected very closely with the FAB, the Public Health Accreditation Board standard. So A lot of these, for those of you who have been involved in working on accreditation, you'll see resonance with those. 
we did not even look at those accreditation standards when we built this literature, but then we came back and mapped it later after we had done our review. So at the workforce level, it could be training, providing training, linking to other people doing training. And the other one was around access to technical assistance. Canadians like to use this term knowledge brokers, which basically just means I know someone I can turn to to get the answer. That could be in my agency, it could be a partner university, let's say maybe I'm an academic health department and I know a, an academic person I can call, it could be a non-governmental organization to help on that in this workforce area. Oh, that's interesting. I, I never really thought of workforce development as staff having kind of a go-to person or a go-to contact for information. So I'm, in, I'm interested in trying to assess my staff and whether that they feel like they have the, a way to do that. The next category is leadership, and this is what this podcast is about. So if you can give us a couple examples there, we'll actually take a deeper dive into leadership in the second half of the show, but kick us off with, a, with an example. That'd be great. Sure. I'd be glad to do that. So leadership, we identified basically three major components of leadership that looks like it relates to performance. And one is the skills and the background of leaders. So are they trained in public health? Do they know about leadership practices? Are they good managers? That sorts of things. I think some of that is tangible skills, you know, technical skills. And then I think sometimes it's less tangible things. Do they have a vision? Do they inspire people? Are they reliable? Are they ethical and people look up to them? Those sorts of things that are maybe a little less measurable, but still really important. The second big domain of leadership is around values and expectations. What do they suggest in their staff? Are they committed to high performance, quality improvement, that sort of thing? Uh, do they value use of evidence-based decision-making? And then the other one is sort of this, I guess I call it the style of leadership, participatory decision-making, maybe not on every single decision, but do you know when the stakes are high and the decisions are important, mm -hmm. do they have a management team and a structure that involves the workers and the staff members in the decision-making? Yeah, and we'll get a chance to talk a little bit more about that in the second half because I think that's a really uh, important one to dig a little bit deeper into. The third micro, locally modifiable, AEBP, or evidence, uh, Administrative Evidence-Based Practices, you category, is organizational climate and culture. Yes, that one is also really important, and it does connect with leadership. And so with that one, it's things like access to the latest information. I know where to go to get the latest high-quality scientific information, needs assessment, maybe it's the community need, maybe it's the political policy environment. Um, the second part of that is the support for innovation. Do I reward employees for trying something new? Is there sort of this exciting, innovative culture around? Or is it sort of, well, we've done it this way all all our time in this agency, and we'll just keep doing it this way. So getting new ideas, creativity, the excitement of public health there. And then the other one kind of relates to the workforce one maybe a little, is this idea of a learning orientation that the management communicates well. They build this idea of learning into their, into their climate and culture. And so you can see these domains overlap some, and, and we have some specific measurement items we've used that I'll talk about later help us understand what's going on within each one. Yeah, that's another area that's worth uh, taking a little bit of deeper dive into, and again, we'll, we'll touch on that later. Okay, so the fourth area is relationships and partnerships. Give us a quick example there. Sure, and, and this is actually one I think where across the board agencies do pretty well in, and this is looking across organizations. So 
if I'm working on physical activity and obesity, do I connect well with the transportation agencies and the education agencies? And so that's the ability to build common ground and work across part of the silos in government or across society, really. So that's this one of interorganizational inter connections. And the other one is the, the vision and the mission of the partnerships. Do we align the missions? Do we seek common ground? And even if you're working with agencies whose missions aren't stated as public health, do we still find common ground where our missions can move us forward in a way where health is one of the benefits? Yeah, I think that one is, deserves probably at least a, a whole episode, if not a whole series of episodes, as we consider how we're going to do our work moving forward and building bridges and relationships. I know we, we already have strengths in that area. I feel like it's an area that we can continue to grow in and be better. Let me just move on to the last one there. For We're going to be running short on time. But the last category is financial, which I think a lot of people can relate to. But can you give us a couple examples there? Sure. And this is kind of the show me the money one. You know, this is do we have diverse funding sources? How do we do our contracting? Do we build in financial issues and quality improvement in our decision-making processes? And this is one where if you've got someone on the latest management practices, we can learn a lot from the business sector in health areas and other areas where we can improve our financial practices. Not just do I have a grant to do this, but are we using the resources effectively and efficiently? Yeah, that's critically important. So just to review, we had five micro AEBPs that are high priority, which means locally modifiable. To me, that translates into something that's actionable. So that's workforce development. Number two is leadership. Number three, organizational climate and culture. Number four, relationships and partnerships. And number five, financial. And these are the AEBPs. I think the takeaway for me so far is, you know, these are point two actions that public health practitioners can take that are supported by evidence and are linked to outcomes and that can improve the performance of their units, divisions, or departments. So we're going to take a quick break here, and when we return, we're going to dive deeper into a couple of these locally modifiable AEBPs and then review some practical tools to, to get you started. Hi, this is Dr. Mehul Dalal with a quick break here. I know in the day-to-day -day bustle of work, it's not easy to study and apply leadership best practices. I also know that leadership is not about a particular individual who happens to be in a supervisory position. It's about working together to identify and cultivate these skills and capacities in each other and at all levels of the organization. Leadership skills should be foundational to all public health professionals as our field confronts change both from within and without. It's my hope that this year's National Association of Chronic Disease Directors President's Challenge, Learn, Lead, and Thrive, will draw attention to best practices, industry-leading thinking, and most importantly, practical advice on how to implement these concepts and techniques in our daily work. Please tune in to other episodes of this podcast where I talk with leading experts tackling important questions around professional development, succession planning, managing up, job satisfaction, and more. We've lined up exciting conversations with folks like Dr. Ursula Bauer, Dr. Gina Longi, Dr. Mark Lipton, Professor of Management at the New School, Drs. Amy Rosniewski and David Berg, both professors at Yale, and Dr. Ross Brownson of Washington University. To access the podcast, go to the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors President's Challenge webpage found at chronicdisease.org, where you'll also find links and resources related to this and other podcasts in this series. Now back to the show. Okay, welcome back. Now let's pick it right up and talk specifics in terms of identifying areas for action. 
Ross, as you know, this podcast series is about leadership. And one of the categories of high-priority AEBPs was leadership. We touched on it earlier. I'm curious to get into that a little bit more and some specific areas under leadership that are evidence-based and might show some yield in the short to medium term. I know we covered three areas under leadership, which is skills and backgrounds, values and expectations, and style. But maybe we can pick one and, and talk a little bit about that a little bit further so folks can get a flavor of what that means in terms of implementation. Sure. Yeah, maybe I can cover one or possibly two. And maybe I'll cover some that are quite modifiable, and there's a variation both at state and local level. So why don't we talk a bit about one we talk about is the fostering a staff participation in decision making that one I talked about earlier. Yeah, and when that makes we look sense. at yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> so when we look at state level data, we in early 2016 we collected data from about 500, almost 600 NACDD members about how well they're doing on these domains, and it looks like 55% report they're doing well essentially the way we measured it in fostering staff participation. And that is a little bit higher than data we've had at the local level, where it's closer to 50%. And it gives us an idea of sort of how people can involve, you know, small teams in decision-making, lay out that process, have good communication structures in place. When they involve members in leadership important decisions, they take it seriously. Maybe they don't do every time what, what the bottom-up process ends with, but they take it seriously and work on it. So that's one where roughly half of members say they, they're doing well at this. So there's quite important. It leads toward higher performance of an agency and also one where there's a fair amount of room for improvement. Yeah, I think one of the points you hit on seemed to be very important is that having that structure in place. So you may have a kind of a, a quick critical decision to make, for example, something that means reflecting to an unpredicted or unexpected piece of legislation that might affect many members of the agency. To try to pull everyone together to make a, a shared decision on that can be challenging. So I appreciate the idea of having some structure in, in place. Is that sort of along the lines of what you were talking about? Yeah, it definitely is. Thinking you know, a little more proactive about this and, and also thinking, I think, with a leadership team, uh, where does it make sense to build this in? You know, there may be some quick and simple decisions that you don't need full participation in. And other times, I think the challenge sometimes is the big picture, long-term, really strategic decisions where you really want a lot of leadership. If they come from a policymaker, they may want a decision very quickly. And so you may not have all the time yeah. you would like to have sort of a group decision when it's something with a short time frame on it. Yeah. And another piece of this, and it's something I'm hoping to cover in a subsequent podcast, is the the, the bottom-up piece. But I think many of our are in, in middle management. So there's also the, the managing up aspect of, of shared decision-making yeah. and, and the strategies to, to bring pressure and engagement to, to higher levels in higher levels in the agency. Yep, I agree. The other area that I think would be important to, well, do you want to cover anything else under leadership? I think that gives a, an example, and we will link people to the paper. Actually, I can link to a, a few papers on this so people can dig more deeply into it. Yes, that would be certainly helpful. So the other area which I think comes up a lot in conversation, at least the recent ones that I've been in, is organizational climate and culture which can understandably be a bit of a nebulous concept for many, but we also know that it's really important. So give us a couple of specifics here, because I think that, that'll be helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think one I mentioned is this idea of uh, 
supporting an, an innovative environment. And in our survey of NACDD members, 46% say they're doing well on that one. And, you know, this can be thinking about things in a new way, encouraging a variety of approaches, maybe some creative thinking that gets outside of the usual thinking. Maybe it's building a new, bringing some new partner into the mix that you hadn't thought of bringing in before. And I think that's really an important one. Oftentimes it's the it's bringing in some new team members and some different thinking and some people who might be, maybe the ideals are a little wild, but they're still worth thinking about. And, and so that's one that shows a lot of room for improvement. The other one I think is one that's very tangible and one we've been working on that's is basically how people do job descriptions, job performances. Are the are these evidence-based skills reflected in people's job descriptions within the organization? And that's one that's newer that we've sort of been building out and working with a few agencies to try to to see how we operationalize that one. Definitely be curious to learn how that turns out, and I know many of our listeners listeners will be too. And just to be your point on innovation again, I think it's uh, it's good to have that example that innovation could be as simple as bringing someone new that hasn't had been offered, usually been part of the discussion into these conversations about, you know, whether it's planning or implementation. It doesn't mean that suddenly we'll transform as a, a public agency into some sort of startup where we'll incubate, you know, the next revolutionary idea. But innovation could be as simple as um, bringing new perspectives. I think, again, that's a very good and concrete suggestion. And, you know, potentially maybe uncomfortable at first, or we'd have to pave the way for those conversations. But I think, at least in my experience, whenever there's, you know, a different perspective at the table, it's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Totally. So I want to spend this last minute of time. I wish we had a lot more time, but because obviously your work has a lot of application throughout our profession and how we apply it. But I do want to spend this last bit of a time, and I promise our listeners that we would point folks to some practical tools and advice and action steps. So could you point our listeners in a couple of directions for this? And of course, whatever you point out and whatever we can, we'll we'll link up to NACDD President's Challenge webpage. Sure. Yeah. Let me give you a, a few ideas. And I think the first one I'd start with is the idea of assessment. So we've developed a tool that's up online. And it's if you just Google PHSSR translational toolbox, there's a tool we call the ABP's assessment tool. And if you if you're if you're running a chronic disease unit and you want to have your team, let's say you have a team of eight staff members working at all different levels, they can go on and, and do this rating of the ABPs and it gives you a, a summary score basically. And you can see across our five domains that we just talked about how you're doing in different areas and then we benchmark it against some national data. Right now, the national data we have up there is from a national survey of local public health. We will be putting up the NACDD data as well as a benchmark. So what that does, it's, it's a tool that gives you room for where, where people can be show improvement. It shows you where you're doing well and where improvement can come. So I think that one is the one I'd start with. And then I think there's things like, how can I as a supervisor or leader improve my own skills? Maybe there's some ideas on there, some other things you've read or heard about from, from other podcasts or other things that NACDD has been working on that would improve your own skills. How can we get this climate among the supervisors that AEBPs, this kind of evidence-based decision-making, is the norm and not the exception, putting it in job descriptions, putting it in performance reviews, little things like that that is done with, with employees to build it. And then I think the third one building off their assessment would be providing training, resources, 
technical assistance, if I need help on something, who's the go-to person? Maybe it's a qualitative question or a quantitative question, and where do I go to get that? And I think those are some tangible things that people can start to do, but I would probably start it with the idea of assessment and, and then build off of that. Yeah, that's really helpful. So just to quickly review, there's the assessment and to actually review and clarify that assessment is geared toward supervisor levels or all levels? It would be anyone. So what we found, it's interesting, what we found is when the supervisors, especially at the local level, fill out one of these assessments, they sort of rate things as better or higher than the employees do. So I think it's important in this that you have a, a number of people, and I would suggest probably five is the minimum to fill it out within a unit. Mm -hmm. and, and you fill it out, and you basically sort of get a report card from it, and, and, then, and that gives you some idea of where they're doing well and how do, we benchmark, how do we benchmark against other organizations. Okay, I got it. So it includes supervisors and potentially line-level staff as well. Yep. Okay, so that's, that's one. That seems, that seems imminently doable and available, so that's great. And I think this other idea might be, you know, not necessarily a long-term, but something that can be implemented perhaps at team meetings, this idea of creating a climate where AEBPs become the norm. I really like how that's framed. And then making sure that staff have access to training resources and TA. And talking back to an earlier comment, you said, you know, can they pick up the phone and have a go-to person when they have a question? I think that's a really important potential informal indicator. So did we miss anything in terms of the material we covered earlier? Anything you want to emphasize again before we close out? I think there's only maybe just a few other things that we've sort of alluded to. I guess one of those is keeping in mind that public health is a team sport, that you're always going to have a team and you always want to think about, well, I might not know how to solve this, this problem, but I know someone else I could help with, and that's exactly what you were just alluding to. So that's one important thing, and I think even when you're in a high-performing agency, we can always do better, that there's always going to be room for improvement. And let's say we're doing great in – this area, this this AEBP domain, but maybe another one, there's some, some definite room for improvement. And then I think it's also, you know, having worked in a state health department for years, there's always a lot going on. And so not trying to do it all at once. It, start thinking about, okay, what are some small steps I can begin to take that will get us moving in this direction, but not say, you know, by next week we're going to have a different agency, but start thinking incrementally and then building capacity and building this idea and the culture of evidence-based decision-making. And, uh, and I've seen that work in many agencies, so it's, it is doable if you don't just try to take on too much at once. Yeah, I think that's a really important advice. I think that that's a great sort of a realistic action step to sort of end on is the idea that, you know, like find something that's manageable amongst all this. And again, that's sort of the goal of this whole podcast series is to help people identify something that's practical and manageable and they can envision implementing regardless of how hectic and busy the things are in, in their day-to-day -day work. That sounds great. Dr. Ross Brownson, thank you very much for being our guest today. I'm glad I was able to join. We'll put up some resources for you, and I'll be glad people know how to find me. So I also would welcome anyone who wants to email me with any, any specific questions. I, was, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed the time today. Uh, great, thank you. So that seems like a request or permission for us to put your, put up your email address in, in our links. Definitely. Would that be okay if we do that? Yes, that's perfectly fine. Great, wonderful. Okay, and thank you to the listeners for listening to the Learn, Lead, and Thrive podcast, where we covered a lot of territory today. Just to quickly recap, we started out with macro versus micro AEBPs, or Administrative Evidence-Based Practices, 
and we looked at high priority versus moderate priority, high priority being the ones that are locally modifiable on a relatively short time scale. And all of these distinctions serve to the purpose of uh, pointing us towards areas that are both evidence-based and actionable. We just covered some specific tools to get us started. It looks like we'll f be able to find the assessment, the PHSSR assessment around administrative evidence-based practices if you just find it on your web search engine or, of course, we'll have it linked up. And as you know, this podcast is my president's challenge, and it's about exploring credible and actionable ideas and concepts. So the next step is up to you. Download and review the articles and resources, and then find a way to integrate these practices in your daily work. That's the call to action for this podcast. So thank you for listening, and tune into other podcasts in these series, where we'll be continuing the conversation with leaders and experts.